Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm so excited that you're tuning in today. Today I'm joined by another incredible individual, Dr. Andreas Gamal from the Hospital for Special Surgeries. And Dr. Gamal and I are going to be discussing a lot in the realm of joint preservation and cartilage management when it comes to the knee. Dr. Gamal researches this and has extensive experience and knowledge in this field. I know you're going to love this episode, and I highly recommend checking out Dr. Gamal's work for more information. Enjoy the episode. Dr. Gamal, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to be working with you today. Hey, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. So for people who might not be familiar with you and all the incredible work that your team at uh, Hospital for Special Surgeries does, would you mind kind of filling them in a little bit about your background and what you do? So I'm a, an orthopedic surgeon, and then um, there used to be a time when an orthopedic surgeon would treat everything pretty much from feet to back to wrists, and now we have specialties and, and sub-subspecialties. So within orthopedic surgery, I'm in sports medicine, and then within sports medicine, my my main focus is on joint preservation. And and people always ask what what's joint preservation, and sort of one kind of quick way of explaining it, it's young people with old knees. And so if you see someone who's who's 20 or 30 or 40, because for me, physiologic age matters a lot more than chronologic age. So just because it says 20 in your driver's license doesn't mean that you have to be young. You could be very overweight, you could be unhealthy, and and then some of the techniques might not work for you. But if if you're 50 and you're in shape and your joint overall looks looks good, then that might work for you. So it's trying to do things surgically, but also some non-surgical interventions that hopefully will will delay the need for a knee replacement. The need for a knee replacement usually comes from the breakdown of articular cartilage and other stuff in the joint, for lack of a better way to put it. Is that typically what you see? Yeah, that's exactly right. So I... I love speaking in analogies because I think a lot of medical speak is a little bit of um, um, unintelligible goobledygoob. So when when you look at a joint, joints are bones meeting, obviously, and, and bones are pretty rough. So bones grinding on bones, that doesn't make for a good articulation. So wherever bones meet in a joint, they're covered with a tissue, that tissue is a few millimeters thick, that's called cartilage and it's very slippery. So it makes for a much better articulation than rough bone. And cartilage can get damaged through various reasons. So either it just wears out over time and that's what we call osteoarthritis. And osteoarthritis is something that happens to everyone. It's a given, it's not a disease like let's say diabetes that some people have and others don't, breakdown happens. And in that sense, we're not that different than let's say the tires on our car or our sneakers. Everything wears over time. Cartridge is amazing because it wears really slowly. And for the most part, it serves most people for their entire lives. Meaning the vast majority of people will not get a knee replacement. Now, doesn't mean that they're perfect. If you get older, and I certainly feel that too, things getting a little creaky and a little stiff, um, doesn't mean that you have bone-on-bone arthritis, but there's a little bit of wear and tear, and that's cartilage damage. But like anything else, it's a spectrum. So we talked about osteoarthritis being at some point bad enough that you might think about a knee replacement. And the term people use most commonly for that severe form of osteoarthritis is uh, is bone-on-bone arthritis. So now that layer of cartilage has rubbed away, the bones touch, that generally doesn't feel so good, but that's really late stage. For this joint preservation, hopefully we are intervening way, way before. Um, 
and this is where now the analogies kick in a little bit more. If you think about a happy, healthy joint being like a freshly paved road, which is nice and smooth, then cartilage damage is sort of the equivalent to initially you get a few cracks in your pavement and then you might get an isolated pothole and then that gets bigger and then you have multiple potholes and at some point the whole thing is, is beaten up. The beaten up part, that's in stage, that's the bone on bone arthritis. So joint preservation ideally kicks in in the early phase when we have one or a couple potholes, but the pavement between the potholes, the cartilage and the rest of the joint is still okay and we can just focus on those potholes. Right, and then your goal would be to preserve and maintain the current state of that tissue, maybe repair it a little bit, um, but ultimately I would think um, preventing further wear and tear and breakdown would be key. Um, and from what I know about cartilage and joint wear and tear, when you have that kind of pothole type effect, we'll call it, you can refill it with hyaline cartilage, which is what lines the joint in the first place, but it's kind of hard for your body to produce new hyaline cartilage on its own. So it typically produces fibrocartilage, which I would imagine is going to be more like a dirt or sand filling that pothole than an actual repaving of the entire surface. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's exactly correct. And um, it's funny, that analogy actually holds um, true for that too. As, as you were saying, you can fill potholes with different things. And I live in New York, and if you look at our streets, they're full of potholes. And it's not that the city doesn't try and fix it. They just don't seem to be doing a great job. So the quality of what you put into that pothole determines how successful the repair is. So the body itself can't really repair cartilage damage if it is pure cartilage damage. And to keep going with the analogies, if you have a paper cut that doesn't bleed, that never heals, right? At some point, you we always shed our skin, so we make new skin. So at some point, that paper cut will go away. But it only goes away because we happen to replace our skin. We don't do the same with cartilage. Um, on the other hand, if you have a deeper cut that bleeds, the blood actually leads to repair and you end up with a scar, which is not as good as the skin was before, but it, it's pretty workable. And taking this back to, to cartilage, so if you only have an isolated cartilage defect, there's no healing of that because cartilage doesn't have any blood vessels. So there's nothing the repair crew can get there, if you will. If you have what's called an osteochondral defect, so you have a more severe injury, and let's say you break off a chunk of bone and cartilage, let's say when you um, when you dislocate your patella, your kneecap, then you have blood and the body then can try and repair it. But as you we were saying before, it's not the highland cartilage, which is the articular high quality cartilage, it's fibrocartilage. So it's a scar tissue that as long as the defect is small enough, it's good enough. But for anything bigger, that fibrocartilage over time breaks down and you're kind of back to square one. So ideally we want something that's higher quality. So higher highland cartilage, and that's something we have to help the body with. Right, so what can we do to help preserve that hyaline cartilage level and hopefully prevent the need for anything in the first place? Is there any proven methods to, you know, reduce the breakdown of that? I mean, that's the holy grail. <laughs> so, and I get phone calls all the time where people are, let's say they're 30, they're 40, maybe things start getting a little creaky. They start thinking about, hey, my 50s, 60s, 70s, where will I be? Is there anything I can take, we can inject to slow down the, uh, the inevitable degeneration of cartilage. And we're not really good at that. And that's true for any tissue. Uh, dermatologists do a lot of work with lasers and injections, but ultimately we all get wrinkly. Um, here, turns gray, falls out. For knee joints, really the only thing we can, or the most powerful thing we can do is so that's the public service message that we hear anyway. So we can control our weight because if we're heavy, we put more stress on our knees and we want to be strong. And that's where you come in and you help people be strong 
and be wise about getting strong. And what I mean by that is, you know, I, I did sports when I was younger. I still ski. I used to run, but now I transitioned more to the elliptical or the exercise bike. Um, so doing pretty consistent exercise that is low to medium impact. So uh, running is not an evil thing like anything else. If you do it in moderation, it can be good. Um, but you want to do something to stay flexible and strong. So the older you get, the more you want to make sure you hit that combination of weight control, flexible and strong. And things like yoga, Pilates are really good because they're low impact and they do they cover those bases. And then you throw in some, some low and medium intensity uh, cardio, bike, elliptical, swimming. I think the rowing machine is really great because it's a whole body exercise that's a little bit more exciting than just sitting on the bike. Right, right. And even the rowing machine works something like a knee joint through a pretty good range of motion as well, yeah. um, which I would think is also important too, not just doing repetitive activity or loading it, but also keeping a good range of motion of the joint over time, as you mentioned with things like yoga or Pilates practice as well. Uh, now, all of that is good, but I see a lot of patients too, Dr. Gamal, who have something like uh, post-op ACL reconstruction, or maybe they had a meniscus tear. And some of them have made comments that, you know, when their surgeon was in there, they noted different things about the cartilage levels in their knee. Or some of them have said, you know, hey, my surgeon thought my knee looked amazing other than, you know, we're missing an ACL or something along those lines. So from a joint preservation standpoint, what do you typically see when other surgeries come into play, whether it be a meniscus repair, an ACL repair, and does it vary at all based on the type of surgery that was performed. So for example, would a quad tendon ACL graft do different things to a knee joint than a patellar tendon or a hamstring graft? So those are great questions. So now we go from, hey, I'm just sort of getting older, but there's no trauma. What can I do to sort of be smart about getting older mm -hmm. to, hey, now I had an injury of some sort. Mm -hmm. And Unfortunately, with any injury, the risk of arthritis goes up. So there are some studies that looked at patients who had an ACL tear um, and their risk of developing arthritis is seven times greater. Why is that? Well, in part, it's the original trauma. So you, uh, sort of, we talk a lot about concussion in sport, bad for your brain, any kind of knee injury bad for the joint itself for cartilage so if you tear your acl you dislocate your patella there's a certain amount of energy and damage that happens right at the time and we can't really do much about that because that that just happens um, but then there's the sort of after effect effect so what does a meniscus tear or an acl tear do treated versus untreated over the long run and if we look at an ACL, if you don't have a functional ACL, your knee is looser. And there are studies that have followed patients with untreated ACL instability. And there's a certain percentage of patients we call copers that do fine. We don't really understand why they do fine, but they do fine. Um, but that's maybe a quarter of patients. And unfortunately, we are not smart enough to identify with exam observation or MRI who those copers will be. Um, but the majority of people who are non-copers, if you follow them, because the knee's looser, it puts more stress on other structures, so cartilage and meniscus, and those injury rates go up. So um, if you look at someone who's been running around with an ACL that's not stable, and they are not a coper, then the risk of meniscal tears goes up. And the problem with meniscus tears is they are an important shock absorber. And if you lack shock absorbing function, then the cartilage sees more of that shock, more of that load, and it breaks down more quickly. <clears throat> so if I see a young patient who has an ACL tear, but 
the meniscus looks okay, that's great. You have an increased risk, but it's not crazy increased because you have your shock absorber. So let's try and get your knee stable by doing an ACL reconstruction. And that, even though it doesn't bring the risk down to zero, at least it minimizes the risk for further meniscal injury. And well, hopefully your knees will be fine until you're old. Um, if I see a patient who with or without an ACL tear has a meniscus tear, then I want to really figure out, is this a meniscus tear that can be repaired? Because if I can repair it, then it is something where if it heals and if you're young, it heals much better. I can keep hopefully arthritis from happening also for a long time. But on the other hand, if this is a, uh, a meniscus tear that's just totally blown apart, or if it is more like a hangnail, um, hangnail, uh, there's no blood supply there. So even if we could somehow super glue a hangnail back, we wouldn't expect that to last. And the same is true for some of the meniscus tears. Then the only option is really to kind of trim it so that it doesn't catch and hurt, but then your uh, risk of arthritis goes up. So it depends a little bit on what kind of meniscus tear you have, what kind of ACL tear you have. But if it is something that you can repair, then being proactive and repairing it to preserve the function of whether it's meniscus or, or ligament is really important, especially if you're young. But I, I still feel young enough, so I would probably have that too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I love your point on the type of tear as well in the meniscus, because I think it's, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's the horizontal tear that is usually more difficult to repair. And something like a bucket handle uh, tear is very important to repair quickly. Mm -hmm. And I believe it's also true that if you injure both the ACL and the lateral meniscus simultaneously, that the meniscus repair is likely going to heal better because of the amount of blood and swelling that the joint gets in response to the drilling of the bone tunnels for the ACL graft as well, or at least I've heard that in the past. I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that. Right, so meniscus tissue it, it doesn't have a great blood supply to begin with. That's why um, the older you get, the more of these de degenerative meniscus tears people get. And what I'd mentioned before, this sort of hangnail type meniscus tear, that, that's sort of a typical meniscus tear people get in their 40s, 50s, um, where well, the body's like a paperclip. If you bend it off enough, something will break, and that's true for the meniscus. Um, those are the tears that usually are not repairable. So those, if they, they bug you enough um, and it doesn't respond to physical therapy, giving it a little time uh, or anti-inflammatory, then you go in and you just trim it out. But they usually don't affect a huge percentage of the meniscus. So they, they do increase your arthritis risk a little bit, but those are usually not the ones we worry about. The ones we worry about are the ones that you had mentioned, bucket handle meniscus tears. They tend to happen in, in younger patients very commonly together with ACLs. And here the whole meniscus is affected. So if you can't get that repaired, um, then your arthritis risk goes way up because you're losing a majority of the shock absorber. And the good news is because it is a a bigger part of the meniscus that's affected, that tear is closer to the capsule, which is where the blood supply is. So that tear likes to heal if you give it a chance. Um, and they happen in younger patients that have better healing potential. And then what you had said is really important in terms of doing a meniscus repair at the same time as an ACL. When you do an ACL, because you, you drill tunnels to attach the new ACL to and those tunnels open up the bone marrow in your, your shin bone and your, your thigh bone. So some of the marrow um, cells, so stem cells can come out. Um, it can be a little uncomfortable when your knee has some blood in it after surgery, but that blood brings in a lot of healing factors. So studies, which you had referred to, looking at, hey, I only have a bucket handle tear that I repair versus I have a bucket handle at the same time as an ACL, the healing rates together with an ACL are higher. And 
because of that, when I repair an isolated meniscus tear, now I always aspirate bone marrow from, from your tibia, from your shin bone, and inject it into the knee um, to sort of have the same, same kind of environment. That's interesting. I like that approach, Dr. Gamal. And what you just explained makes a lot of sense from a physiological standpoint. Um, I'm not sure if they've looked at this yet from a research standpoint, but I know initially, I think when ACLs were being reconstructed, there was a time when the extra articular ALL was very common. So would a extra articular, more of a rotary stability ligament still have the same effect or not? Because it's not in the joint space the same way that the bone tunnel ACL would be. So, I mean, it would be, it would be a good thing in terms of the mechanical stability it provides, but it, as you were saying, since an ALL or, uh, or an IT band tenodesis, those are technically extra articular. They are in the knee, but they're not inside the knee joint. They're sort of between the capsule and the skin. They wouldn't provide the same kind of bleeding biologic environment. So kind of shifting gears again here, Dr. Gamal, I love the uh, discussion on the knee injury role in the cartilage of the knee itself, because I feel like anymore, we just hear so much about knee injuries. I mean, I think the prevalence of ACL tears is up to what, 400,000 a year or something um, incredibly high. So this is a problem that many people are living with. From a diagnostic standpoint, ACLs, I think most people turn to the MRI, same thing for the meniscus. Um, and there's a number of different clinical tests that have been developed over the years to help assess those from the Lachman and pivot shift signs for the ACL to something like a Apley McMurray, Standing McMurray or Thessaly for the meniscus. Is there really anything outside of imaging that we can use to help pick on uh, pick up on cartilage defects or loose bodies or joint mice, uh, for lack of a better way to put it in the knee? Um, unfortunately not. So it, a lot of patients who have symptoms from cartilage defects initially get diagnosed as potential meniscus tears, and then they get an MRI scan, and it turns out it, it's not actually a meniscus tear, it's a cartilage defect. And um, that's where high quality imaging really comes into play because I think a lot of the public things an MRI scan is an MRI scan. And that's like you say, a camera is a camera or know, a, a monitor is a monitor. So they all have different resolutions. And if you have a latest generation MRI scanner, um, the resolution that you have is like you have a, a beautiful, high quality camera with a long lens and you can take that incredible sports picture with great resolution um, versus like a throwaway um, like an old polaroid it, it makes a huge difference and i have patients who get a lower quality well they, they come because they had a lower quality scan someone's like oh i think i see a meniscus tear let's just do a scope and clean out the meniscus and then they get into the joint and surprise there may, may or may not be a small meniscus tear, but the true reason was a cartilage defect. But because cartilage is such a thin tissue, sometimes you, you really, in low resolution scans, you can't tell whether you have a defect or not. And on physical exam, no way of distinguishing a cartilage defect. Now, a loose body oftentimes has symptoms where, um, and that's really important, when you listen to a patient, one of my old mentors, and that's a pretty common saying, I always said 80 to 90% of the diagnosis lies in just listening to the patient. Um, because if you listen to patients and they describe when it hurts, where it hurts, is it dull achy pain, is it sharp pain, are there mechanical symptoms? Um, you had specifically mentioned loose bodies or joint mice, and they're called joint mice because they kind of peek out one way of the joint where you might feel a little nubbin, something floating around next to your kneecap. Uh, and then the, the next day it's gone there, but it shows up on the other side. So you have something that can range in size from a pea to a large marble that's just floating through your knee and it can lock up your knee. So if you listen to patients, oftentimes you can sort of narrow down, but nowadays, um, 
a, a good quality MRI scan is really the uh, the diagnosis of choice. And is there on the MRI, is there a certain T weighting or anything like that specifically that you like to see to help rule in or rule out something with the cartilage? Yeah, so there, there are two sequences that are helpful. The so-called proton density sequences that usually have a really good resolution. So that shows you the cartilage defect in detail and you can measure them. You can, depending on the, the quality, um, is it a full thickness defect, is it a partial thickness defect? And then there are so-called fat suppressed or sort of P2 type images, and they're more fluid um, sensitive. So they don't have they don't have a great resolution, but oftentimes there's inflammation and irritation because of the cartilage defect where the bone gets inflamed in a way. And that really stands out nicely on these other sequences. And then you mentioned too about the importance of the subjective history in gathering your diagnosis. From a differential standpoint, is there anything else that you would think of that could present comparable to cartilage lesion or some type of loose body in the joint? So loose body, the presenting symptoms is usually, hey, something catches in my joint or my, my knee all of a sudden locks and I have to kind of shake it around or manipulate it to make it go again. And <clears throat> If you think about a loose body in a joint, almost like a ball bearing that's kind of on the loose in a gearbox, if it stays out of the way, no problem. But if it gets between the gears, then everything stops. So patients reporting that, my suspicion is either a loose body or if it's a, a large meniscus tear, then the same thing can happen. Um, the meniscus kind of gets wedged between your femur and your tibia and everything stops until we kind of manipulate it out of the way. So those two large meniscus tears and loose bodies, that's one differential. And then cartilage defects, that's more sort of achy pain, um, unless there's a flap of cartilage associated with it, that if you catch it can give you kind of sharp pain. And the differential for that would be a meniscus tear, a smaller, like the hangnail type meniscus tear. Gotcha, interesting. Now. Usually from a diagnostic standpoint, a lot of surgeons that I've worked with in the past like to try conservative management before they go in and do something surgically. But say you have to do surgery on some of these different uh, diagnoses that we've thrown out there, Dr. Gamal. From a loose body standpoint, I would imagine you would just go in and remove it and we're good to go. But from a joint preservation standpoint, there's probably a lot of different things that you can do. Right. So it's actually a really good point in terms of the conservative management, because it just depends on what, what is your goal. So I'm 52 and you know, things get a little creaky. So there's nothing terrible going on. I'm, I'm fully functional, but let's say if I had more knee pain and my family goes on vacation and I couldn't go hike with them or something like that. It's not that I'm resigned to just sitting on the couch, but it's just, it's not as enjoyable. So here, all I would look for is probably some improvement in pain and function. And conservative management should be the first step. And whether that is, hey, I've been slacking with working out, I'm kind of weak, let's get that going through physical therapy and then a home exercise program. Um, maybe I do, if it's acutely painful, I do a cortisone injection, but you don't want to do too many of those. Um, maybe a little bit of hyaluronin gel works as an anti-inflammatory. It doesn't do any harm because it's a natural occurring substance that every normal joint makes all the way to, let's say PRP, platelet-rich plasma, um, where we take some blood, spin it down in a centrifuge, concentrate the platelets that contain um, anti-inflammatory factors and inject that. But essentially, plan A would not be me thinking about a knife in that situation. It is very different if I see a, let's say, 15 or 16-year-old and they have a loose body. That loose body, yeah, of course, I can just easily go in, grab the loose body, be done in five minutes. But that loose body comes from somewhere. So there is a hole somewhere in that knee where that loose body used to live. 
got knocked off and now it's floating around. And these holes over time get bigger the same way a pothole gets bigger. And that might be of less of a concern if I see someone who is, and I don't want to be ages, so I'll just pick my own age, 52. Um, if let's say that pothole slowly grew in size, leads to arthritis, and I just ignore it or I sort of put band-aids on like injections and anti-inflammatories. And in 10 years now I've developed arthritis. So then I'm 62. And even though I wouldn't love the idea of needing a knee replacement, 62 wouldn't be an awful age to have it. If I take a 15 year old and I ignore the same thing, now, 10 years later, which for a 15 year old seems like this incredibly long time, now they are 25. And now we're saying, oh, wow, you have arthritis. It, it makes no sense to kind of put band-aids on in someone that young. So in other words, the younger you are, the more aggressive we get with trying to repair things rather than just do palliation to make you feel better, but ultimately not fixing things. And sometimes there's a tiny little hole and we can ignore that, but the most common um, time when I see that in young patients, is something called an OCD lesion. Osteochondritis dissecans happens in your early to mid-teenage years where the body just almost rejects a, a small area within your joint. And then that little area almost walls off, becomes loose and starts floating around. That's a whole there. Studies that have shown as long as it's big enough, 80% um, of those patients have some X-ray changes of arthritis 10 years later which puts us into this mid twenties. So here I'm much more aggressive, not just taking the piece out, but trying to figure out what did it come from? So good quality MRI scan and what can I do to fix it ideally at the same time? Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Being able to do everything in one go and getting it right, not just for the short term, but for the long term. And I love how you mentioned the importance of matching what you do to the patient's goals, because everyone's going to want something a little bit different. No two people are going to present identically. Now, on the surgical side, I know before we got on the podcast, we actually talked a little bit about microfracturing. So um, I've heard terms like microfracturing. I've heard, you know, drilling into the bone to help promote that fibrocartilage that we've talked about previously. Um, I've heard autograft versus allograft osteochondral transplant. I've also heard a matrix-induced chondrocyte implantation. Um, for people who aren't familiar, what are all these different surgical approaches for managing cartilage defects or restoring hyaline cartilage? What does all that mean? And is there one procedure that kind of shines above the others in your eyes as far as its effectiveness? Um. Yeah, so there, there are many ways to, to fill a hole. There's um, a lot to talk about here, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, and you, you gave a, a great overview of all these different terms, and it, it, it can be a little bit overwhelming for patients. I think the one important thing to keep in mind is that there's not one solution that fits the entire spectrum of cartilage disease. So the same way most people would say it's obvious that you know, you don't do a knee replacement for everyone who comes in with knee pain. There are different solutions to that. There are different solutions to how do we fill cartilage, cartilage holes. So the oldest technique that's been around is microfracture. And that goes back to what we had said before that isolated cartilage defects don't heal similar to paper cuts. So a microfracture essentially takes a paper cut, meaning a pure cartilage defect and makes it into a bleeding wound. And then you get some blood there, that blood forms just like skin wound healing, forms kind of a scab, underneath the scab, it forms scar tissue that then the hope is fills the hole. And if you have sort of just the perfect patient and the perfect defect, I, I will, say that there is still a small role of not so much microfracture, but the current generation, which is more drilling. It seems esoteric, but instead of punching holes with something that kind of looks like an ice pick, um, where you create little cracks, hence the name microfracture, 
but using a fine little drill bit to more elegantly and controlled drill little holes that's less injurious to the bone and forms better tissue. But it's really only something for young patients um, with a small defect in a certain location. And I do a lot of cartilage repair and maybe I do one or two of these microfractures slash drilling a year. So it, it's something that is still the number one cartilage repair procedure in the US. But if you ask anyone who is more of a cartilage repair specialist, they don't really use it because we have better things. So why is it still used so much? Because it's pretty easy. It's an arthroscopic procedure. So it doesn't feel threatening. It's like, oh, I just look inside your knee with the fiber optic scope and I pull, put tiny little holes in it um, rather than making incisions, for example. And it's technically very easy. So every surgeon feels comfortable with this. People have used it for years. So it's hard to change your ways, it, even though all the evidence shows it is not a good solution for the majority of defects. Um, but the tricky thing is microfacture usually holds up for a couple of years okay. And after a couple of years, you might've moved to a different place or you know, the surgeon doesn't necessarily follow up or you follow up with the surgeon. So in the surgeon's eye, it's not as if all these patients come back and say what you did didn't work because it's not until two or three years that pain starts coming back because that fibro cartilage that forms is just not really good enough to hold up in the long run. So that's why microfracture is slowly falling out of favor as it should. I wouldn't say it's, it's evil and shouldn't be done, but it should be very specific indications that are pretty rare. And the, the better techniques that we have, so talking about something called osteochondral autograft or ODES, that is um, sticking with the pothole analogy. So let's say you have a pothole and it's right in the middle of your knee, right in the middle of the street. And every time you move, it, it hits that pothole and that hurts. So what I can do with this OATS procedure is um, I make a really small incision, like a couple finger width. And I take something that looks like a fancy apple core. So it's a hollow, sharp tube, and I can punch out a cylinder of cartilage and bone. And I do that on the periphery of the joint. So with the street analogy, it's really over by the sidewalk where there's much less traffic, and that's why holes in that area are much less important. And then I transfer that into the sort of the main event, the in the middle of traffic hole. And that is for small defects a great option. It's it's your own tissue, it's fully grown cartilage. There's nothing that like microfracture or, or kind of skin healing needs to form a scab and slowly mature over time. So that can get you back to activity pretty quickly, but the problem is, of course, you pay a little price for taking it from the side. So if you have to fill a really big hole in the middle, then you end up making a really big hole or a series of smaller holes on the side. And at some point, that just becomes too big and you just move the problem to a different area of your knee. So for small defects, autographed oats, I think, is, is really good. Now, if the defect gets too big and you say, well, robbing Peter to pay Paul at some point, um, Peter sort of complains. Now I can have the same idea. I take plugs of fully grown cartilage and bone, but instead of taking it from you, I can take it from a donor. So it is a, a tissue donor similar to organ donation. Um, it is not like a kidney donation, meaning there's no rejection really. You don't have to take anti-rejection medication. The risk of catching a disease is minimal. I mean, it hasn't happened in probably decades. So if my kids needed that surgery, that would not keep me awake at night. Um, it, and then when you put it in, the bone, your bone sort of grows into the donor bone because bone looks like a honeycomb. So a lot of bone is actually empty space. 
and eventually replaces the bone. So if you were to look at this five, 10 years down the line, that bone is all you, but the cartilage stays the donor. Um, cartilage tissue is very, very dense. So your immune system can't really look inside and realize that the cells in there are not you and, and vice versa. That's why there's no rejection. And then another one of these techniques you had mentioned is this Macy matrix associated autologous chondrocyte implantation, which is a little bit of a mouthful. And that's not what we talked about before. Those are all single surgeries. This one is a double surgery where first you go in. So let's say you have a kid with a loose body and a hole. You can go in with the scope, take the loose body out and take a tiny little piece of cartilage from the periphery, sort of the size of a couple of fingernail clippings. So you're not really missing that too much. And then we can send that to the lab. And in the lab, we essentially dissolve the cartilage, take out the cartilage cells called chondrocytes, put them in a Petri dish and multiply them in, in cell culture. And that process takes about three weeks. We go from a few hundred thousand cells to several 10 million cells. And then they get sent back to me. And then in the second surgery, then I implant the cells on a on a little collagen carrier that gets resorbed. And that first surgery, that's super easy. <clears throat> the second one, then like all of these surgeries, you need some protection, meaning a brace, crutches, and some physical therapy to get your strength back. All of these procedures, there's probably a pretty extensive recovery time for them from return to sport, especially. Um, I know you mentioned you're a sports medicine individual, and I'd imagine if athletes want to return to sport after one of these procedures, there's probably um, a six to eight month at minimum, possibly even longer return to sport criteria for most of them. That's right. Yeah. And that's why all of this is really an individualized discussion rather than talking in, in absolute terms. Absolute terms make for a really easy conversation, like this is how it's gonna be, but then it always over-treats or under-treats a lot of the spectrum of, of patients. So you know, obviously return to work is a big deal, but it really depends on whether you are working mainly sedentary, maybe from home, doing Zoom. After many of these procedures, you can go back to work after three or four days well, once you're more comfortable off pain meds while it, i treat a lot of firemen i mean they couldn't go back to work for six or nine months because it wouldn't be safe for them to go run into a burning building until they're strong and the knees reliable so it's always a discussion and in terms of sports do you go back to playing ice hockey which is it's an impact sport for the rest of your body, for, but for your knees, it's actually comparatively okay. Or are you trying to go back to play division one basketball, which is terrible for your knees? Um, so very different return to, uh, to sports. Definitely. Yeah, so your rough six to nine months um, it is fair. Definitely. Now, Say you're working with the physical therapist that's handling one of your patients after one of these cartilage procedures. Is there anything specific that you're looking from them, whether that be firing the quad early and often or restoring range of motion quick? What kind of things do you like to see? So it all comes in, in phases. So I like some swelling control initially, a lot of cryotherapy to get swelling and pain under control. Um, and range of motion is so important because we don't want scar tissue develop. If a knee gets really scarred, arthrofibrotic, that, that's hard. And that's something that you really need to get well underway in the first four to six weeks. So um, it's not something where you can just sit on the couch and wait until kind of the swelling goes away. You've you got to get moving. Um, and then strengthening so strengthening is tricky because depending on the defect location you may or may not be able to load the knee very much um so what i think for my patients really has made a difference is bfr blood flow restriction um it, you know more about that than me so i won't go too much into details but it's really been i would say a game changer for these procedures where you can't put too much load through your knee and 
if you don't load the knee very much, the muscle is not impressed enough to actually start growing. But um, it, with BFR, you starve the muscle, it's impressed much easier and you don't have to load the knee as much. So that really has made much of a difference. Um, and then I like sort of myofascial release type or ART where as a therapist, you can really dig in and it's one of these, oh, it hurts so good. People say it's a little bit torture while you do it, but then it, it really feels better afterwards, breaking up all these adhesions that you have or, uh, or like the little knots in your muscle. So that makes a huge difference. Definitely. And I cannot echo your point about BFR enough. It's been a game changer for us down here in Maryland, working with post-operative patients. And I know legislation is still out in New York for whether or not that's within scope of practice. So um, I'm sure that time will fix that. Um, and there's a lot of other things that I've liked. Uh, now I'll admit, I don't have decades and decades of experience. I'm fairly young. Um, but definitely firing the quad early and often. And I think the high frequency, low intensity is the key because if you do too much, as you mentioned, we need to control the swelling and control the edema because if we have a knee that's just generally irritated and swollen because it was just operated on and we overload it to the point where it continues to get more swollen, and we might fall behind on, you know, a return to uh, weight bearing or a return to another progression later on because we're still dealing with swelling. So I think that getting that under control, firing the quad early and often, and from my fairly limited experience in comparison to someone at, such as yourself, I've found that getting the extension range of motion back first and then chasing the flexion tends to work better. And that's something I've seen in other patients who have come in, um, you know, from past surgeries is maybe they had an ACL reconstruction or another knee type procedure and their PT chased flexion range of motion instead of extension. And there's a noticeable difference between how much one extends versus the other. Um, so I've found a lot of success getting extension range of motion back fire the quad early and often and utilizing some type of other modality, whether that be BFR, E-STEM, a combination of both um, to help facilitate that process and getting the swelling managed within the first month if possible. And if you can knock the box on those three or four things, then the rest of the rehab process becomes so much more straightforward because you've checked all the easy boxes already. I'm so glad that you mentioned that with extension because the the comfortable thing after surgery to do is, is put a pillow behind your knee, keep your knee bent a little bit. It, it absolutely makes it feel better. But the problem is you lose the ability to fully extend really quickly and getting that back is, is hard. So, and once the scar tissue is established, it's, it's, tough to just stretch that out in extension. Flexion stretching is a little bit easier because you have a sort of a better lever arm than trying to get it straight. But so that's why doing the, the hard thing, putting a rolled up towel under your heel, stretching it out straight um, is really key early on. Definitely. I completely agree with you, Dr. Gamal. Outside of surgical options, you mentioned a few different types of injections earlier. You mentioned PRP, you mentioned the possibility of doing like a cortisone or a variety of other procedures. Is there any type of injection that you've found benefit from outside of pain relief and temporary reduction of symptoms? Um, is the stem cell research caught up to the point where that's something that you consider um, for joint preservation or are we still maybe not there yet? It, there's definitely a lot of talk and a lot of hype. Um, so we've done a few trials looking at, let's say amniotic fluid, um, which contains amniotic membrane that has some special proteins that can help um, work as an anti-inflammatory. And they help with symptomatic pain relief. But sometimes you see billboards where it touts, hey, stem cell injection, avoid knee replacement. It, I think there's a little bit of 
call it overly optimistic advertisement in terms of what to expect from injections. We haven't really found any evidence of structural repair from injections alone. Maybe something on an MRI scan looks a little tiny bit better, but it's a little much to expect from an injection to figure out what's needed in the joint and to just go ahead and do that. If you drop off a repair crew over New York and say, hey, find the leak and fix it, it's not going to happen. And study after study has shown that all of these injections can help with pain relief and because of that improvement in function, but not really lead to structural repair, which is the holy grail. And hopefully we'll get to that. There's a ton of research going on in that field. But currently, whether it's gel injection, PRP, a fat aspiration injection, bone marrow aspiration and injection, these have varying degrees and duration of pain relief. But I always tell patients, we're not talking about repairing things with an injection. Um, <clears throat> part of why the hype is there is that these things are not covered by insurance. And now, if I tell you that this will repair your joint, that sounds a lot more sexy than if it helps your pain. I mean, the pain is really what should matter the most because that limits your function. But people like the idea of, oh, I'm repairing it. My joint will be in a different place, in a better place in five or 10 years if I swipe my credit card than if uh, I do something else. But unfortunately, that's a little, little too much at this point. But like you said, there's a ton of research and hopefully in a few years, we can offer something that actually repairs things um, we're not there yet on the non-operative side. I, I like the way that you broke that down. And, you know, as you mentioned, I think that everything has value and a place. It's just going to be a matter of matching the right intervention approach with the right patient at the right time. And, you know, it, it's, I would imagine it's very difficult for you to be able to speak individually on that since every patient presents so differently to you. Yeah, I, I think there are a few different buckets in terms of injections. Um, so patients always ask, hey, I've been told uh, any number of these injections, what should I do? Or my residents or fellows ask me, what should they do when they're in practice? And cortisone is, has been around forever. Cortisone is, I would say, a necessary evil. Cortisone is not the greatest, whether you take it as a pill or you take it as an injection. So you shouldn't do it just because, you should do it for a specific reason. And for cortisone injection, that reason is if someone has an acute flare-up, a week ago was fine, maybe have a little bit of arthritis, but nothing crazy. And then I did something out of the ordinary. I surprised my knee, which arthritic knees don't like, and it's a big flare-up. Now it's really swollen, I have water on the knee, my motion is limited, it, uh, it just hurts and I can't do anything. And oh my God, I have trouble walking, working, you name it. Cortisone is still the best that we have for that particular situation to make things better quickly. So I can drain the knee, I pull out the fluid, helps with swelling, but we wanna make sure that that swelling doesn't come right back because it's the inflammation that creates the swelling. So doing cortisone at the same time will help that. It's sort of a quick fix, but I said it's a necessary evil. So repeated cortisone injections are not the greatest for a joint. There's no hard and fast rules. Patients sometimes come in and say, oh, I've been told I can only do three in my lifetime. There's no such study that has shown that. It's just the gist is um, don't do too many. What is too many in my practice, at least? If you do one, two a year or so in a given joint, nobody's ever shown that that does something something bad. If somehow you ended up doing five or 10 a year, that's not great. It kind of degrades the tissue a little bit, but that's for an acute thing. If somebody comes in and says, ah, my knee has just been bugging me kind of the same now for a year because cortisone doesn't last very much, very long. It would put a temporary dent of a 
a couple of weeks, maybe a month, and then you go right back. So for that, now we're looking at the other bucket of things. And in that bucket is a hyaluronin. So I said that it's sort of a slippery molecule that normal knees make. There's PRP. We take blood, we spin down the platelets that contain anti-inflammatory factors. Um, and those two are the easiest. Like the hyaluronin, it, it, it comes out of a box. That's super easy. I just inject it. That's like cortisone in a way. Um, PRP, it's a blood draw, but it's like any blood draw um, that you have maybe at your primary care physician visit when they check your cholesterol. So not a big deal. When you go into more of the stem cell world, which is bone marrow aspirin um, or a fat aspiration, now you're talking about a procedure. So bone marrow, we have to put a needle into your bone, suck out bone marrow. It's not awful, but it's not, it's pretty uncomfortable. Um, and doing a fat aspiration, I, everyone has a little bit of belly, belly fat. Fat contains stem cells. You can aspirate some of the fat. Unfortunately, it's not like a liposuction where you look at, I don't know, you, you go somewhere the next day and people are like, you lost weight, you look great. It, you don't aspirate that much. So unfortunately, you don't get that benefit. But it's also pretty uncomfortable. You wear sort of a binder for, for a few days. You get black and blue. Um, so there's a little bit of a, a price in terms of invasiveness to pay for those. And I have done all of the above. I've migrated more towards PRP um, because some studies have shown that the more invasive to the bone marrow or, or the fat aren't really that much better than PRP. And then you have to ask yourself, why do I pay more, both in terms of actual cash cost and discomfort? But they all help with, like the, all of them have a role and some people are very strong believers in, in one versus the other. But if you look at high quality randomized trials, it, I, for me at least PRP is sort of the easiest for the patient. So that's where I'm migrating to. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting, Dr. Kamal. And as you mentioned, the, you know, research clinical trials, I know you do a number of those yourself. So for people who might want to find out more about you and your work, where can they find more about you at and your publications and research interests? Luckily, I have a somewhat unusual name. <laughs> if you type in my name, I think there's one guitarist in Germany who shows up. That's not me. Um, but if you if you just Google search my last name um, and maybe type in HSS or knee, it, it'll pop up. I have a website as well, which essentially is sort of my name. If you search my name, it'll come up and, uh, and that will explain a little bit of the different techniques that I use. Um, there are a few links to podcasts on there as well. I don't do too much on social media. I don't know. I, I don't like the look at me, look at me too much. I'll try and keep it a little bit more with sort of research and facts, but um, I have just like we're doing this. And I think these conversations are great because it puts things maybe a little bit more, it makes it more approachable for, uh, for people. So I thank you for, uh, for doing this. Of course, Dr. Kamal, I really appreciate your time. Do you have any closing thoughts or anything else that you wanted to mention on the conversation of joint preservation and management of cartilage? Yeah, I think what always frustrates me a little bit is um, I can't tell you how many young patients I have. So patients in even their 20s who have been told, <clears throat> well, you have arthritis, you just need to, I don't know, don't do anything active, I mean, sit on the couch, take some ibuprofen and come back when you're old enough to have a knee replacement. And in the vast majority of cases, that's not true. And why do physicians say that? Um, Non-orthopedic non surgeons might just not know. Uh, then maybe they shouldn't really speak with absolute, um, in absolute terms they should just refer to someone who knows. But even many of my colleagues don't do these things because technically they're a little bit more challenging. 
you have to fight with insurance to get them approved. It's uncomfortable. It disrupts your normal sort of just maybe conveyor belt type of practice. Um, so many people don't want to deal or they just don't know how to do it. Um, and I'm sure they're great at other things, but cartilage is sort of this as a started out as sub subspecialty. And um, that doesn't make me special. I just have 20 years of doing this, so I better be good at it. <laughs> um, so a lot of patients should look for second opinions, and I would encourage listeners to do that. Now, maybe that's true. Maybe you are 20 and you have a catastrophic joint that's arthritic and you come see me and I tell you the same thing, sit on the couch and take an Advil. Um, but that's not very likely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that as a ending message because at the end of the day, I've seen a lot of people have crazy things happen to them and you're not what's happened to you. You are what you choose to become. I've seen individuals, you mentioned the ACL copers. I know someone who has gone about 20 years without an ACL and he still goes on three hour bike rides. Now that might not be for everyone, but just because something has happened to you does not mean that you have to give up all hope on returning to a lifestyle that you want. Yeah, no, that, that's very wise. Dr. Gamal, I really appreciate your time and for everything you've done for us today. Thank you again for sharing your knowledge and insight with us. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you next time.